Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We are going to be talking this week about how different the world might be if one or two small things had come out slightly differently from the way they did. Corbyn, Brexit, Trump. We're going to think about what the world would be like if some of those things hadn't happened. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast, John Lanchester, Mary Beard, and we hope to have some more soon talking about the state of democracy and the state of the world. As well as politics, the LRB has book reviews, essays about art, poetry and exhibitions. Whether you want to get a deeper understanding of world events or just get away from it all and read about Picasso and octopuses, the LRB will have something fascinating for you. This week, Hillary Clinton has been in the United Kingdom, promoting her book, giving interviews, getting an honorary degree from Swansea University, I think, reconnecting with her Welsh roots, and pretty much telling every audience she speaks to that she coulda, woulda, shoulda been the President of the United States. So in honour of Hillary, we don't have an interview with her, but we're going to talk about some coulda, woulda, shouldas. got Helen Thompson, who is an expert on political economy. I went for a non-alcoholic drink with one of the very first students I taught in Cambridge. He's written a book called Islanders. Not Jimmy Carr. No, Patrick Barkham. Jimmy Carr is the very first student. He was, the very single first student I taught. Chris Brooke, who is an expert on political theory, but they both know about lots of other things too. So we went to the cinema to see The Party, and it's a sort of black comedy about the lives of various people falling apart. Um, (laughs) No, we enjoyed it very much indeed. (laughs) And I thought we'd do this in reverse order. We'll work back to Brexit. Let's start with the general election that was, but easily might not have been, and how different British politics would be now. It's not that long ago. It seems to me perfectly plausible that Theresa May could have come back from her walking holiday, getting back in touch with her Welsh roots. And even if she decided that she wanted to have a general election, someone persuaded her, Linton Crosby or someone else, that it was a very risky idea. And so she didn't. And after all, we should remember, I don't know about you, but it was a big surprise when it happened. And we, we assumed that at this point we would be talking about Brexit in the context of a Theresa May government that had the majority that had been acquired in the 2015 election, so a small but workable parliamentary majority, straightforward Tory cabinet. And she would be negotiating now with, among other things, the threat of calling a general election hanging over the negotiations as one of her bargaining tools. After one of the things that she threw away was the possibility of saying to the Europeans, if this doesn't work, I'm going to have to call a general election, and then you don't know what you're going to get. So, Helen, do you have any sense of how radically different these Brexit negotiations would be going if Theresa May was the Theresa May of six months ago? I think that they would be the same in this respect, in that the reasons why she called an election ultimately seemed to be bound up with the fact that she didn't think that she had enough room for manoeuvre within the negotiations, both in terms of the people in in the Conservative Party, but not only in the Conservative Party, who in some sense want to stop Brexit, or at least have a Brexit that's near indistinguishable from existing membership. And on the other hand, those who, let's say, are somewhat gung-ho about the the World Trade Organisation option, and that the possibility that either side of that could make it very difficult to reach an agreement that actually required 
a reasonable amount of money being paid, I think, was what precipitated this election. Now, what she's left with is the problem that she had with before, that she's not actually got a sufficiently big, well, she has no parliamentary majority, but she has one constructed now with the Democratic Unionists. So the fact that she doesn't have much room for manoeuvre in terms of the negotiations, in terms of the domestic politics around her is pretty much the same as it was before, with, I would say, a couple of caveats. The first caveat is Scotland. That is an issue that was not put to rest, but temporarily at least quietened by the election. So there was the threat hanging over this that the negotiations could lead fairly quickly to a crisis of the union. And that is now not part, I think, of the political landscape, is that the SNP has been much weakened by the election. And then the other side of it is obviously is, is that the election ended up strengthening the Labour Party in ways that were unexpected. And paradoxically, because I say paradoxically because of what was actually in Labour's manifesto that was pretty much indistinguishable from the Conservatives' position on Brexit, that has strengthened those people who would actually like to stop Brexit. So she's now in a, in a worse position in domestic politics than she was before on that side of it but on a better position in relation to the Scottish side of it. But she doesn't have the election as a get out for any of these things I mean that's the sort of thing I'm trying to get at is that the thing that's made the biggest difference either with the Europeans she's negotiating with or with her own party there was always that great unknown which was we put this back to the British people and allow them to establish a position for us and that can't happen now there will not be another election with Theresa May as Prime Minister so she can't the one I thought big bargaining tool she had which was to threaten her own party with a general election threaten the Labour Party with a general election threaten the Europeans with a general election even though now we know what that kind of election might result in but she's she's lost that I'm not sure that threat has entirely gone away because one of the things we learned earlier this year is that the fixed-term Parliament Act is a dead letter Mrs May wanted an election, she got an election, and you could imagine circumstances, I think, where the Prime Minister says that with the current parliamentary arithmetic, the country is effectively ungovernable, there's no majority for any plausible Brexit but arrangement. But not this Prime Minister. Well, I wonder whether, really? she, I wonder whether she couldn't, because that would she, be is really able, she does have the possibility of disciplining her own party through threatening them with a Corbyn landslide. But you can also tell a plausible story about how it would be better off for the Conservative Party over the next five to ten years to be out of government right now. What's going on is potentially disastrous for the Conservative Party. And finding a way of creating the possibility of holding an election that Mr Corbyn is likely to win and putting all the Brexit headaches over to him, from a certain point of view might be an attractive option if the current situation just becomes completely intractable. People used to do this in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, stand down from office in order to put the other side in and give them a go in not propitious circumstances in order to rebuild and take power at the next opportunity. These days, in a world of professional politicians, power changing largely at election campaigns, we've rather lost sight of that. But one of the really interesting things about British politics since 2010 is we're reminded that a lot of the patterns of 19th and early 20th century politics never fully went away. On an earlier podcast, I was talking a bit about how this was quite like what was going on around 1922 to 24. And I'm always interested in those moments where patterns of late 19th century politics might be recapitulated. And I think May still has that card to play if she wants to. I don't think she will, but I don't think she's thrown it away. 
like you, I love these historical comparisons. I just don't buy that one. I can't see the current Conservative Party being threatened with a Corbyn landslide in order to discipline them, not getting rid of the person who was making that threat. It seems to me that her position is too weak. I get that that's the other version of this threat. She had the threat of an election. She has the threat again, but this time with the possibility of Corbyn being Prime Minister. But a modern Conservative Party faced with that would have one more throw of the dice, which would be to ditch her and stick in Boris or someone, because they just, I don't think they play that 19th century game. I think the reason why it's different is is that Corbyn is just not like any leader of the Labour Party from the early 20th century. And however much part of the Conservative Party and part of the let's call it the business class, particularly in the city, which is obviously very exercised about Brexit, loathe the idea of leaving the European Union on WTO terms in, in an economic sense. They hate even more the idea of a, of a Corbyn government. I think that there is just something about the Labour Party being led from the position it is being led from at the moment and the person who is doing it and the people around him that do mean that some of these historical parallels, which I, like you, are usually um, keen on, don't quite work in this context. Labour's route to an overall majority is still a very difficult one. The Scottish parliamentary arithmetic is still not especially good for them. It's just possible that they'll get extraordinarily lucky in Scotland and win a lot of seats on a very small swing because of the extent to which a number of Scottish seats are now three-way or four-way marginal seats. But it still looks to me implausible that a Labour Party can emerge from an election in the near future as a majority party. Right, but it's not implausible that Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister after the next election, either in a coalition or as a minority government. That's got to be the likelier scenario. Oh, absolutely. No, No, I agree with that. But again, I'm reminded of the machinations when the minority Labour government was put in in 1924, that, again, there was a lot of anxiety about would this be radical socialism in number 10, and the first Labour government turned out to be a damp squib. And one of the reasons it turned out to be a damp squib is that it was a minority government, and minority governments are never going to be able to do that much, as Theresa May is sort of finding. Another version of this hypothetical, if if there wasn't a general election, so the general election exposed Theresa May, I think we can all agree, as a much less formidable politician than she appeared to be six months ago. But if there had not been a general election, there would still have been an election in May, the local elections, which were this historic triumph for the Conservative Party. She looked like this incredible election-winning politician. That would have been the last election that we had had. It was a catastrophe for Labour and for Corbyn. The reason he survived was that there was a general election coming up and then he turned that around completely. So I don't think we'll go all the way back and do a what if, what if Corbyn hadn't become leader of the Labour Party? Because actually, of all of these events, that's the one that's hardest to imagine not happening in hindsight. But if there hadn't been a general election this year, and that was the last electoral test, Theresa May would be presumably still believed to be an election winning politician. And I actually not sure Corbyn would have survived that. I think that that is a a hard question to answer because of what we know already from 2016, earlier 2016, of the difficulties of removing Corbyn from the leadership. But the Labour Party would not be in the position that it is. Jeremy Corbyn would be kind of stuck in the, he's not doing very well, we can't get rid of him. And the Tories were also winning by-elections in government. I, I think, though, that the other thing we've got to bear in mind about what would have happened without an election is that George Osborne would still be in the House of Commons. And we've learnt quite a lot about George Osborne. You say that, I wish people could see the look on your face. It's <laughs> Since, as though the name George Osborne yeah. now has a kind of 
whiff of sulphur around it. Since the election, and he clearly is a man still with an agenda. What that would have meant in terms of internal Conservative Party politics, we don't know. It's also the case that if the election had turned out the way that Theresa May wanted to, she would have almost certainly have sacked Philip Hammond as Chancellor. Someone else would have been Chancellor. There's a question about whether she would have been able to ride the May elections and the general perception that she was still quite a successful leader and still have the capacity to sack Hammond. If that were the case, I think that her position in the party would have been strengthened from what it is now, except for the fact you would also have Osborne's machinations going on directly in the House of Commons. And one more last question about this, reflecting on how it might be different. The other thing that seemed to be the case before the election was people thought she'd been very clever in putting in bumbling Boris Johnson and David Davis and Liam Fox into these positions because they were characterised as the fall guys. So as the negotiations got bogged down, when she needed to make a useful sacrifice, these were the people who would fall. And she can't do that now. I mean, if there hadn't been an election by this point, as well as firing Hammond, presumably she would be blaming someone for the negotiations getting stuck. And the weakness of her current position is that she can't really fire anyone. And that seems to me the ultimate way in which she's trapped herself. She's getting the blame for the negotiations going wrong because she can't ditch the people who are doing the negotiating. Well, Johnson and Fox don't have a great deal to do with the negotiations. No, but they would be sort of sacrificial. I mean, Johnson is being held up and the Europeans are saying, well, we can't negotiate when that bumbling fool is sending these conflicting messages. I suppose I'm, I'm less taken with that alternative scenario because it's not obvious what the alternative is. And that goes back to the question of having an election. May wanted the election because she didn't think she could get the Brexit deal she wanted through the existing House of Commons. That would have been the case whether or not David Davis is negotiating competently or not. That's a political calculation about the balance of forces at Westminster. And sure, you can imagine even now she could fire David Davis, but it's not obvious then what the alternative policy looks like. I think we can probably agree British politics would be very different, but the fundamentals of Brexit are unlikely to have been changed by the question of when a general election happens in this country. So if we go to the, the bigger one, the coulda, shoulda, woulda with Hillary. And it's one of those events that we're so used to a world now with Donald Trump as president that maybe we forget that it was really, really close. 100,000 votes in a couple of states would have swung it. She clearly still feels that this thing was effectively stolen from her by a series of malign forces. So had she won, the world would be radically different from how it is now. So one question about this it's almost as though we're so used to Trump being president that people have forgotten to question his legitimacy. I've been struck by how little, even the people who loathe him, they're so exercised by complaining about the latest thing that he's done that they almost haven't got the breathing space to say he shouldn't be president. He lost the popular vote or whatever. If she had won, her legitimacy would have been questioned from day one, whatever the result, even if she'd won the popular vote, as she did, and easily won the Electoral College. My guess is Trump wouldn't have shown up for her inauguration for a start, and that he would have spent the, the final period before she was inaugurated basically questioning her legitimacy. How much damage would that have done to the presidency, do you think, relative to the kind of damage that Trump is doing now? I think it would have done considerable, but I think I disagree that there is an ongoing questioning of Trump's legitimacy. I think there's plenty of it and in the United States around the Russia angle in particular. I think what you would have seen is, in some sense, a kind of a parallel presidency over the legitimacy question, and there would have been 
in the way which there now are a set of investigations about Russian influence in the election, there would be a set of investigations that would have continued about Hillary Clinton's use of her email, and in particular about the Clinton Foundation. Because if you recall that although the, the Clintons had said that Hillary and Bill would be withdrawing from the Clinton Foundation, there wasn't actually a plan in place as to how this was going to carry on. I think you would be seeing, assuming that for the moment that the Republicans had still retained control of Congress, ongoing questions ongoing congressional investigations about the Clinton Foundation. There was a story that actually has come out, I think it was yesterday, um, about an FBI investigation into the sale of 20% of America's uranium to Russia that involves the Clinton Foundation. That would have been ongoing. So I think that her legitimacy would be questioned. There would have been this confrontation between Congress and the presidency, which is going on in terms of the Trump presidency, and that there would be... At the same time, Trump mobilising discontent amongst people who felt that Hillary's presidency was illegitimate in the same way in which leading Democrats have been mobilising discontent amongst those who feel that Trump's presidency is illegitimate. In that sense, there wasn't a way out of this, I wouldn't want to call it yet a crisis of legitimacy, but this problem of legitimacy of who could win an election in the United States, a presidential election, and the defeated side accept the result. And of course, I'm not saying that people who are opposed to Trump are reconciled to him being president. I get that they do believe that in many ways he is illegitimate. But in a way, it's almost as though half of that has been parked into waiting for some investigation or some reveal to deal him the fatal blow. And on the other hand, and maybe this is part of his skill, the energies of the resistance is constantly being sucked up into resisting the latest thing that he's done. And my sense of it is that wouldn't have been the case with the Hillary presidency, in that as well as waiting for the killer blow that, well, I think Trump supporters would assume that killer blow would never come because the fix would already be in, there would be constant day by day refusal to recognise that she was the president of the United States. And that would be different. I suppose the thing that I'm not clear about is what Trump would have done had she been elected, that it's plausible to think he wouldn't have turned up for the inauguration, but then would he have continued his campaign and continued to be touring the country and holding rallies and whipping up that kind of discontent? Or would he have got bored of the electoral politics game and left the political arena as quickly as he entered it? So I agree completely with Helen that had Clinton become president, her presidency would now be enmeshed in congressional investigation and very possibly by now impeachment. And that's the interesting dynamic that we don't yet have in the Trump presidency because the Republican majority in the House is still sticking by him, at least in in that respect. But I don't have a sense, and this may be because at various times in the past I've misread what Trump is up to, but I don't have a sense of how Trump would have reacted to election defeat more than a week or a month after the election itself. And I think that would make a difference because it's a question of the extent to which the congressional Republicans and the regular political leadership of the Republican Party would be reasserting control of the party, or whether the dynamics in the Republican Party continue to have the energy flowing towards the more populist, raucous, white right that Donald Trump so energised. I think Trump would be setting up a television station if he'd lost this election, and mobilising discontent that way. I mean, as you know, I think I said this several times in the podcast in 2016, I was never really convinced that he actually wanted to win the presidency, as opposed to wanting to use running for the presidency for business purposes. And I think that was going in the direction of television. And I think that 
he would have posed a significant threat in a way that Hillary's playing things somewhat differently in terms of the legitimacy of Hillary Clinton's presidency because he would have been not necessarily stirring almost like the daily fix of outrage in the way in which Trump's tweets generate, but he would have carried on commenting and carried on provoking and punching at Hillary Clinton in the way in which he did during the campaign and looking to get reactions out of it. And presumably a lot would depend on whether he looked like the man who nearly won an election that he couldn't win or clearly lost an election that he was never going to win because Hillary is still being blamed for losing the unlosable election. If he had come close, it would be hard for the Republican leadership, him having trounced them in the primaries, to re-establish their authority over the party. So if it had been as close the other way around, he would be the man who would say, I'm the only guy who could even have got that near to denying the Clintons the presidency. I think he would, but I don't think it would have had much to do with the Republican Party because I don't think he was really running as a Republican Party candidate. And I think if he lost the election on the I'm against the establishment, the establishment have screwed me over there wouldn't have been any meaningful relationship between him and the Republican Party from that point onwards. The other thing that would clearly be different is, we talk about it a lot, there are international crises happening all over the place, Catalonia, with the Kurds now, international politics, geopolitics, as Brendan Sims calls it, is very febrile at the moment. And it's almost taken for granted that under a Trump presidency, the Americans are kind of either going to be confused or not going to get involved. If Hillary had been president everything both about her political philosophy and her personality would mean that she would find it impossible to resist taking a leading role in all of these crises, presumably. Her presidency would have seen a much more significant asking of the question, what is Hillary going to do as the answer to how these things play out? What's she going to do about Catalonia? What's she going to do about the Kurds? What's she going to do about Russia? The Chinese are having their party congress. What does Hillary think? And no one asked that about Trump because either we don't care or we don't believe that he knows. On a number of issues, Trump has effectively pursued the kind of foreign policy that Hillary Clinton would. I mean, I think that's not true across the board. But if you look at how seemingly radical his critique of us, of Obama's foreign policy, what we can see is, is that one clear breach on Iran, the fact that he wants to decertify the nuclear deal and Hillary would not have done that. Pulling the United States out of the Paris Climate Accords, again, not something that Hillary Clinton would have done. But on Syria and Russia, which are the two, you know, in some sense, fundamental questions that American foreign policy has engaged with over the last at least half of a decade, I don't think you would have seen such a difference. I mean, I think that, interestingly, Trump, for whatever reasons, has moved much closer to the position that the Obama administration was pursuing on Syria. And he has not been able, I don't think in this case entirely of his own volition, to be able to change Russia policy. The thing that might have been different is is that Syria policy might have been more confrontational even than what Trump has ended up pursuing because of the fact that Hillary had stood on a platform that included establishing no-fly zones over Syria. Now, if she'd actually pursued that, that would have meant some kind of confrontation with Russia on another level than anything which we've seen from the Trump presidency. But I still think that actually Trump's moved much closer in the Middle East and in relations to Russia to the foreign policy that Hillary Clinton would have pursued than we would have thought. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. OK, let's do Brexit finally, which is a bit different. And in a sense, that's the background context for this, as well as wanted to talk about what Hillary might have done had she won, because we're also just entering that phase of British politics in the wider context, where people are starting to think about whether the referendum 
will be rerun in some sense. And of course, a referendum is different. So we've been talking about two electoral events. And people can have buyer's remorse and people can regret what they did and so on. But it's not meaningful for people to say, oh, let's do that election again. You have to wait for the next election. And next time round, Hillary Clinton won't be a candidate. No one's out there saying, let's rerun the 2016 American presidential election. But people are saying, starting to say more vociferously, we're going to have to rerun that referendum on Brexit. Obviously, it'll be a slightly different kind of question because we are currently stuck. We have an answer to a question that was posed to the British people. British people gave a clear answer and the politicians are paralysed in trying to act on it. And that phrase, buyer's remorse, is starting to circulate. So there was a piece of polling that was analysed by Peter Kellner, who I think is, you know, has a position on this. He very much regrets that we voted to leave the EU. But he said that he's noticing for the first time, after a period where it seemed that everyone was fixed in their positions, the beginning of a shift, particularly among some working class voters, to doubt that they made the right choice last time. It's not a huge shift. But maybe the desire to remain has opened up a five, six point polling gap. And we have to be careful about these things. We talked a few weeks ago about the shift in Trump's approval ratings. He seemed to have ticked up by five or six points. And that lasted all of a week. And he's back down where he was before. So we don't know. But Chris, do you have a sense that the what if question is actually becoming a serious question now in British politics, which is, what if that was a mistake? And not just among the politicians, among the public. It's very tempting to have a model where public opinion is in the lead and then if public opinion shifts, then you expect it to ripple through the political system, changing the views of backbench MPs, changing the attitudes and the political calculations of ministers and then saying that that then opens up new possibilities and prospects for what may happen. One of the things that I think we've learned over the last few years is that the various ways in which politicians respond to events and pressures of one kind or another often play out in very strange and sometimes counterintuitive ways indeed. So whether a shift in public opinion actually transforms the landscape of Brexit politics will depend on a lot of other things too. It may work to embolden Labour Party opposition to what the government is up to and that will increase the pressure on the Prime Minister. But then we're back with the big question of what does the Conservative Party do in response to that? And it's always possible that what the Conservative Party will do in response to that is replace Mrs May with a with a leader who's more gung-ho for a harder Brexit. And they might, may run into even more fearsome difficulties after that. But we shouldn't discount the possibility that things like shifts in public opinion won't quite produce the outcomes in the short to medium term, which at the moment is when it matters, that the analysts like Peter Kellner want them to. The huge presumption in the let's have the referendum again argument because people's opinions might be changing isn't anything ultimately to do with public opinion. It's to do with the question of whether actually the EU27 want Britain in the European Union or not, because underneath the question of political opinion is an actual problem of what Britain's position can be either inside the European Union as it was as it still is and has been but was bound up with a whole set of contradictions in particular the relationship between Britain's membership of the European Union and its non-membership of the euro and what 
the future relationship could be outside the European Union, whether that can include a, a comprehensive trade relationship or not. These are really hard questions to find answers to. David Cameron did not get to having a, a referendum simply because of some kind of like fickleness of his own thinking on the issue of Britain's membership of the European Union or simply to appease the Conservative backbenches, or because he was worried about UKIP, but because there was a set of fault lines that were working their way through Britain's membership of the European Union that came to a head. And they haven't gone away, despite the difficulties of finding some alternative economic arrangement with the European Union in a post Brexit world. So, if I ask you the straight question, then say Cameron had won that referendum. Which again, it's, that's a bit of a stretch as a what if, because it wasn't close. I mean, I think we have to be honest, and there is a lot of opinion that actually the leave vote could have been higher under some circumstances. But say he had won it, he would still be Prime Minister. George Osborne presumably would still be Chancellor of the Exchequer. But those fault lines would continue to be working through British politics. So where would we be now? I mean, we've often assumed that the Brexit vote killed UKIP. A Remain victory in that referendum would almost certainly have supercharged the UKIP branch of British politics. Where would we be now? The first thing we have to think about is what would have happened in terms of the Conservative leadership, because we would, I think, then have been looking at a leadership contest sometime during this Parliament, or what was this Parliament anyway, between George Osborne and Boris Johnson. Now, in the circumstances, given that Cameron said he wasn't going to carry on to the what would have then been the 2020 general election. In the circumstances of the referendum campaign, if we assume everything about the campaign right up to the end was the same, including Osborne's threat of the punishment budget, I think we'd have to say that Johnson was more likely to win that contest than George Osborne would have been. Now, Johnson would then have won the Conservative Party leadership as someone who'd campaigned against Britain's membership of the European Union, but he couldn't immediately have held another referendum so the question is, is, well, what then position would the Conservative Party have taken under a Johnson leadership going into what would then have been the 2020 general election? I don't think a promise of another referendum could have been made quickly, but it's not at all difficult to see how, as these fault lines continue to work themselves out, as UKIP effectively probably became the opposition party, that there will be increasing pressure to hold another referendum, and particularly in a context in which then other fault lines working their way through the European Union around the Eurozone, issues about Italy's position in it, issues about the relationship between the Western European members and the Eastern European members. We'd still be having a British politics that was dominated by this into the 2020s. I'm not so sure I agree with that analysis of Johnson. I think he's more of an opportunist. And I think for him, the goal has always been to seize the leadership of the Conservative Party and become Prime Minister. The scenario that Helen sketched, I think, just has a bit too much of the idea that he was in some sense a principled spokesman for the Brexit cause. Johnson, in any leadership contest, is going to come up against problems of character, problems that a lot of Conservative MPs don't like him, and so on. I dare say, when push came to shove, he backed the Leave campaign with something like the scenario that Helen sketched in mind, that is to say, expecting Remain would win and that that would give him an advantage in internal Conservative Party politics. But it's not obvious to me that Johnson really does want Britain to leave the European Union. And had he become Prime Minister, I think he would have remained happy to do a bit of jingoistic sabre-rattling, 
but it's not clear to me that he then would have staked his premiership on trying to secure something like Brexit. But I agree with the broader picture that things would still be a complete mess, because the one thing referendums do not do is they don't put questions to rest um, and that in, was what in was... the way that the people who call them want them to. And that was what I was going to ask, because the fundamental difference between a referendum and these other events that we've been talking about is that if you lose a general election, the reason you stay in the game is because you get another go. And you know, just wait till next year. Better luck next time. What goes around comes around, all of that. And referendums are meant to be these one-off events. And yet they rarely are because someone still has to have something to offer the losers. And that quite quickly morphs into some people saying we need to run the question again. Do you really think, so in this case, though it was a clear win, 48% of people didn't want us to leave the EU, and that may now be a majority of the British public. Is there any way you think, however these negotiations go, of putting that question to bed, the possibility that we need to run this thing again, that the the people need to be given a second chance over the next five years? Is there some event that might come up? Because it was meant to be the triggering of Article 50 or whatever, but none of these things seem to settle down people's desire to rerun the question, to give the losers another go. Is there anything that will put that to bed beyond us definitively having left? Well, I I think we're back in the old logic, which is that prime ministers call referendums when they're trying to deal with splits in their own party that they can't cope with. And that was the story behind the referendum in 1975, that it was Wilson's way of dealing with a cabinet that was split on the question of Britain's continuing membership of the European Union. And that was the logic behind David Cameron calling the referendum when he did. But Helen, we should say, has just said that's not true. And (laughs) Just blithely ignore that. (laughs) Um, Well, I I think there is something to that old logic. And that's been overlaid in recent years by this idea that, no, there's a different logic behind referendums that ratify constitutional changes of one kind or another. So that's why you have a referendum for the Scottish Parliament or a referendum in London when you're introducing the London mayoralty and so on. Or the AV referendum or the Northern Assembly referendum. Exactly. But I think for these kinds of political referendums that cause such great ructions. I think that old logic is still a powerful one. And if we see a second referendum, it will be because the Prime Minister at the time isn't able to cope with a split party and gambles again that they can buy themselves some time by displacing responsibility for choice onto the electorate as a whole. So let me ask then the ultimate what-if question, which is this government collapses, there is another general election, Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister. Does he then find himself in that situation? His party is as split as any. Does he have to ask the question again to prevent his government from being paralysed? Possibly, but I don't think that the issue fundamentally here is about referendums. The issue fundamentally on this matter is about Britain's relationship with the European Union or Britain's membership of the the European Union. I think that Wilson was actually uh, more principled than in Chris's account of what went on in 1975 is is that if you look at the things that he said as the European Community Act was being dealt with in the uh, House of Commons, he thought that Britain's membership of the European Union had to be democratically legitimated. That didn't actually have to be through a referendum. It could have been through a manifesto promise that wasn't actually there from the Conservatives in 1970 to enter the European Union. And if you look at what David Cameron said in in 2015 in his Bloomberg speech, he said the fundamental issue here is is that democratic consent is wafer thin. Now, you can argue about whether referendums is the right way to deal with that question, but it is the underlying question as to whether 
Britain's membership of a constitutional order that is the European Union has got legitimacy or not. And the fundamental problem, I think, in British politics is is that people in this country profoundly disagree about that question. That actually some people do want to be part of the constitutional, legal, political order that is the European Union. And some people want Britain to be a self-governing, democratic state. And I, I don't see anything that is actually moving these two positions closer together in terms of anything that's happening. In fact, everything that's happened since the referendum has pushed people further apart on this question. But if the aim is to create democratic legitimacy that goes beyond the general election, the trouble is a 52-48 vote to leave the European Union, in the eyes of many people, including some Brexiteers, has not created that democratic legitimacy. No, absolutely. But by the same token, is is it 52-48 that went the other way around would have still left the democratic legitimacy problem? So referendums are, are this promise of democratic legitimacy that never delivers. But I still think that the underlying question here is is because this referendum is about a constitution, ultimately, whatever else it's about, it's about a constitutional matter, a constitutional matter that was never dealt with properly when Britain joined the European Union in the first place. And that is why it's, it's been able to kind of keep coming back and in some sense haunting British politics ever since that moment when the European Communities Act was passed in 1972 and the manner in which it, it did, because it was, a, it was a profound constitutional change that could have been democratically legitimated and actually wasn't. And now we've had a moment of leaving the European Union, or at least trying to leave the European Union, that has also got a whole issue, a set of issues about democratic legitimacy around it. And it's very difficult to see a way out of this problem. I think that's more or less right. But I think it is a story with several stages. And the origin of the present crisis, I don't think, goes right back to 1972 and the debates and the votes in the House of Commons then. It's to do with the eruption of Euroscepticism in the Conservative Party in the early 1990s. There's a continuous story since then, that moment in the late 80s where the Labour Party moved from a more sceptical to a more pro-European position relatively smoothly, and the Conservative Party began to be consumed with infighting against the background of the end of the Thatcher ministry and the emergence of John Major's ministry from that and the very close 1992 election result. That's the context in which the modern Euroscepticism that ultimately energised the Conservative right, that ultimately drove the calculus that made David Cameron call the election, comes from. I'm not sure I'd want to project the story back through the 1980s and into the 1970s quite as confidently as Helen wants to. And then I'd also want to look at some slightly more shorter-term points that, in many ways, this is a story about what's happened since the 2008-2009 crash. It's true that's opened up fault lines and difficulties that, that may have been there for a long time, but I think I'd want to tell stories about this that focus on the crash and then before that, the Maastricht moment, rather than always going back to the 1970s. The Maastricht moment, though, is a, also a product of this, what happened in the 1970s, because the Maast- what Maastricht does and why it produces Euroscepticism of the kind it does in the Conservative Party is it blows apart the argument that was used in 1975 that Britain's membership of the European Union was simply an economic matter and that it didn't have implications in terms of political union. And that is why you get, I think, Euroscepticism in the Conservative Party in the 1990s, allied to the ERM crisis. But that there is a connection between the way in which the arguments that were used to legitimate EU membership originally, or EC membership as it then was, then blew up in the 1990s. So last question, I know you don't like being asked to make predictions, particularly about things that might happen in the near future because then we can be wrong so this one is long enough ahead that by the time we're wrong about this people will have forgotten what do you think the next referendum 
in British politics will be on. And one possible answer to that is you think that we've been scarred enough by these things that no politician is in their right mind is going to want to touch a referendum for a while. It's my way of basically asking you, do you think there will be another referendum on the European question? If you say, look ahead five, ten years, will there be a referendum on something else of fundamental importance? Or do you think we're done with referendums for a while? I certainly think you, you can't rule out the possibility that we're not done with referendums where Scotland is concerned. I'd be surprised if there was another referendum on the European Union question, but I certainly think that it, it's perfectly plausible also that there there would be, because, as I say, that I think that these are inexorable questions to which actually there aren't really any solutions. I agree with that, that Scotland may produce pressures towards another referendum. I can't see British political leaders wanting one on the European question, and that obsessive desire to tinker with the constitution that characterised Mr Blair's government, that seems to be a moment that has passed. And so I don't think we'll have more of the referendums to legitimate those kinds of changes. Some people say there should be a referendum for the next stage of House of Lords reform, but I think there won't be much House of Lords reform and it will happen through the ordinary workings of the parliamentary system and with the consent of the House of Lords, not through a plebiscite. So I think we're probably done with them for a while, but Scotland is the anomaly here. And my sense of it, I don't think there will be another one in Scotland, and I find it hard to see that a Conservative government would go down the route of having another one. On the European question, I think the open question is, if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister, and if we think what Chris called the old logic of referendums applies, which is when your party more or less doesn't allow you to govern because of its fundamental splits, do you succumb to the temptation of putting a question to the people on some fundamental issue? The difference with Corbyn is that he would want to put the question to the membership of his party, as it were. What supplanted the referendum in his version of politics is direct democracy through the membership of the Labour Party, which has the potential to completely change the dynamics of British politics if that's how he governs. But it's hard to see how that has democratic legitimacy. So I think a Corbyn prime ministership could open these questions up again if what Chris says is true, which is sometimes referendums are the only thing that appear to be able to break the logjam of party politics. And whatever else a Corbyn prime ministership will be, it will be trying to govern with a split parliamentary Labour Party. So we shall see, but luckily we won't see for a while anyway. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be talking to the philosopher John Gray about Corbyn, Brexit, Trump, but also the fate of Western civilization. Do join us for that. And if you enjoy this podcast, do please rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. And uh, it's a short film. It's only about 70 minutes. And that's good. I like the way that not all films these days are about two hours long. Mm -hmm. Um, it was in black and white, uh, and it had various outdoors in it. Um, Any and, snacks? Uh, well, I had beer and Joe had wine, and she got a sort of bag of posh. They they were sort of upmarket what's it? Um, <laughs> That's another good catchphrase, yeah. I think, for this podcast. Upmarket what's it? You know, where where people are saying? Basically, you. I know. Yeah. I think it's not just a catchphrase. It's pretty much what yeah. we do. Yeah. Isn't it? This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. 
So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 